It's here in the city. It's here in the city. This is here in the city. This is here in the city. I'm Sarah Harris. I'm Sarah Harris. New message. Truth should be truth. But then it depends on, in the telling, whose truth is it. We're here most Tuesdays, bringing you radio realities from the urban landscape and mapping the city with voices of creative social change in and around Los Angeles. On Pacifica Radio, powered by the people, thanks to the generous support of you, our listeners, the capable crew at KPFK, the innovators of web-based radio at SoundCloud, news you might have missed at newsdesk.org, and the community-funded reporting project, Spot Us. You can find us on the web at here in the city. That's H-E-A-R in the city.org. Good afternoon, KPFK listeners, and to those of you listening to our show on the web. Today is Tuesday, November 15th, 2011. I'm Sarah Harris, and I am here in the middle of the soccer fields and Ladera Little League. I'm also standing in the middle of the Inglewood oil field. At least, that's what industry and regulatory folks call this place. City and county officials refer to it as the Baldwin Hills Community Standards District. People who live here and use this park know it as... It was called Summit Field. I don't know why it was called Summit Field. I don't know if the the whole of that, that hill that we live on in that area, um, Windsor Hills on the, on the east, Baldwin Hills on the, on the north, as well as Culver City is a part of it on the west, and then what you would call View Park on the south was a summit or something in Los Angeles, but we called it Summit Field. For the rest of the month, here in the city, we'll be reporting to you from this place as part of our series called Air Check, Pollution and Petroleum from a Community Perspective. My co-producer, Tandi Sizwe Shimorenga, and I have chosen to spend the next few shows in the Baldwin Hills because this place is perched on the summit overlooking the past and the future. On one side, the oil discoveries that drew wealth and intrigue and prospectors to L.A. at the turn of the last century, and on the other side, the future of Los Angeles parkland, at a moment when public access to the great outdoors may well trump the desire for traditional industrial jobs and big real estate developments. To a degree, both spaces on this summit are imaginary. To another degree, both spaces are very real. So this is Tennessee's Way Shimmering, and I'm speaking with Dexter's story. Dexter, you are a musician. I'm a musician, correct. I'm a full-time <laughs> musician, composer, songwriter right, right, right. in Los Angeles. And you work with uh, Carlos Nino, Dwight I'm Tribble, I'm a lot of some uh, wonderful people. Wonderful people, KPFK fans and... and uh, um, radio personalities. So, right, yeah, right. I work with some great and people. you've traveled all over the world. <laughs> yeah. But I know you because you're my cousin. That's right. <laughs> Keep it real. And when we was little, you were a member of Ladera Little League. I sure was. That played baseball in the field. I believe it was maybe one or two fields at that time, uh, right off of Slaw- right on Fairfax off of Slauson. I, it's now the uh, Yvonne Brathwaite-Burke 
Recreation Center. They've redone it, and, uh, and it's uh, more than one field. It's it's a lot more than when, when we were coming up. But I wanted to ask you about your memories of playing there because of what we're finding out now, the concerns with the health hazards to the children who play baseball there now. And there's also a soccer field now. Back then, I don't remember anything about a soccer field. I just remember coming to some of your games. Yeah, um, well, growing up as a kid, you know, we called it Summit Field. I grew up there not just playing baseball at what was called the Dara Little League and Summit Field, but, um, you know, I also did a lot of playing on those in those fields. I grew up as a, a BMX racer. I raced bicycles. I liked riding bicycles very fast, and that was the only open area near my home. So I would take my, my friends and I would go there and 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 BMX or you know bicycle motocross up and down those hills growing up summit field was comprised of three of three fields there was a minor field there was a major field and then there was a scene what they called the senior field and um, you would start off on the minor field you know say at age eight eight years old and you'd work your way um, through high school up to the senior field and um you know, I was on, um, if I count correctly, I was on about one, two, three, four, five, maybe five teams during the years I played at, at Little League, there Little League. My memories of, of Summit Field are wonderful. I, I'm, you know, now I, I wish children today, I wish kids today in our urban environment and city had that opportunity that I had to, to ride free, you know, to, <laughs> to um, ride the dirt and, and, um, you know, it wasn't paved. It was completely raw. Right now, the new field it, with the soccer field as well, a couple soccer fields, is completely paved. Um, there's a park, there's a walking park, and it's wonderful for, for the residents around the area. But when I grew up, you didn't see adults until it was time for the games at Summit Field. But you did see kids riding the dirt. You know, And, and it was time. dirt. And it was dirt. And it was hard, compact dirt. Um I don't recall ever calling it the oil fields as a kid. That's, and this is a great, great opportunity for me to speak about it because I get to relive kind of like or, or even, you know, relive the lack of, of insights I had about where I was. But I knew there were oil. Um, what do you call those rigs? I don't even derricks. know what you derricks, the oil derricks. Mm-hmm. I saw the oil derricks. They became a part of me. I didn't, you know, growing up with those, I didn't even question them. <laughs> so... You know, I rarely saw a truck, an oil truck. You know, now in my in my um, you know, in my 40s, now I I actually can focus on the trucks and I see them. I see the Halliburton trucks. I see the other trucks rolling out. I see um some of the pollution. Um, I've heard stories. You know, now that I'm I'm a little older, but growing up, I didn't have any record. There was no recollection of even being aware of that being a hazard. You know, being hazardous to us. We just thought we had an opportunity to ride free and ride the dirt like we thought kids in Azusa and and Monrovia and even Gardena could do on dirt fields. And I was I must say, I also got a taste of the politics in the world in the world via um, Summit Field. I got to know that it's not always about your talent, sometimes about who, you know, you know, how um, maybe how much money you donate, how much time you put in. You know, um, <laughs> wow, what, you know what age was this? That was um, I first became aware of that at around age 10 or 11. <laughs> yeah. And, and and I, I you know, on one particular team, I was benched and I was benched behind a player that wasn't that I thought wasn't better than I was. 
and um you know his father was the coach of the team you know and and I, that was my first <laughs> run in with with politics per se you know so i oh, I, I loved boy. it but you know i will say that that's you know what was wonderful about playing at Summit Field. You know we we did feel like we had a home. You know although it may have been a little neglected, it was um, it was ours. This place, as much as any in the city, is grappling with land use at the dawn of the 21st century. Environmental and health concerns may finally be gaining on economic interests in oil extraction, but the oil fields were here before most of the houses and they have a certain priority under existing law. At the field here on a Saturday morning, Rico was standing watching his daughter play U-10 soccer. He also works for Los Angeles County. So we work down in the oil fields, but we do it for uh, mosquito problems. Yeah, because they have a lot of standing water in the oil fields, so we do treatments for mosquitoes to uh, prevent West Nile virus. Really? Yeah. I would never have thought in the city of Los Angeles, if you asked me where would be the place that I would most imagine West Nile virus would be a danger, I would be thinking like reservoirs. Oil fields. I mean, they got a lot of reservoirs. They got a lot of basins where they hold water. So we, we do uh, inspections and treatments. We do trapping. We, we have uh, birds, sentinel flocks that we test for West Nile. How do you catch a bird? No, they're chickens. We have them in a, in a coop, and then they go there every two weeks, take a blood sample and test it for West Nile virus. Because, you know, West Nile is a, a bird disease. That transmits to people. Right, from the bite of a mosquito. So you, um, how often do you come out here for soccer practice? Uh, twice a week. And does anybody really think about the oil fields or the rigs out there like when they're here in the park playing? I think most people just forget they're there, in my opinion. I mean, there's some people that live around here, so I don't know how they feel about it. I live in Inglewood, so I'm not near it. But, you know, I think it's okay to me. I mean, I know they're trying to expand the oil fields. Yeah. What what is it, a thousand new uh, oil pumps or something? Well, they're supposed to be, now that they, um, that Supervisor Ridley Thomas, uh, he was part of this move to get them to reduce the number, so it's only going to be 500. Oh, okay. I mean, but you you work out there in the fields. What's the difference between 500 and 1,000, really? Mm. I mean, it's half. <laughs> but from the perspective of somebody <laughs> who's looking at all oil. that standing water, right, in those, like, tanks and stuff, yeah. you know, is it like, oh, wow, okay, yeah, that's a huge reduction? Or is that like, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, the more it. holes they dig in the ground, the more water's going to hold for us as far as for what we have to do. But we work on them to pump the water out, you know, but... I mean, I, I know a lot of people around here are against it. This is an active oil field right in the middle of a well-populated, historic African-American neighborhood overlooking the whole of the city of Los Angeles. Oh, this is La Cienega Boulevard, um, and this is the southern portion of the, uh, the Kenneth Hall State Recreation Area. 
This is here in the city, and I am standing on a hilltop with David McNeil of the Baldwin Hills Conservancy, and we are looking out over... You're in the sports complex now. Below us is a canyon um, that is currently owned by the Baldwin Hills Regional Conservation Authority, which is you know, our partner agency, yes, from La Cienega to here, actually all the way to Fairfax, is currently surface rights publicly owned. Surface rights. Surface rights. And then, of course, the most valuable part of any place that's got nothing but oil coming out of it is the subsurface rights, which we were not able to acquire, uh, which are owned by, uh, I think Occidental actually owns the subsurface. So here we have this preservation of open space, buying it to make sure it never turns into more office buildings or condominiums or, or anything like that, and protecting the habitat that lives here. Um, but waiting until the highest and best use of mineral resources is exhausted before we can really actually do something with it. You are in the business of um, banking land for future beneficial use. Yeah. Can you explain what has this space been prior to 2001? The Baldwin Hills has been an oil operation since 1924. Um, you know, the long history is gentleman named E.J. Lucky Baldwin, I was Lucky was his middle name, um, purchased the land from one of the original land grant holders, uh, Sanchez. Uh, so the Spanish land grants, you know, were handed down through family to family, and the last holder was Thomas Sanchez, who owned about 3,600 acres in the Baldwin Hills, which is basically all this open space, plus, you know, parts of Culver City, parts of... Uh, View Park, parts of, you know, Lemur, just, you know, how big you could get. And uh, he bought the land and he used it for agriculture um, and mostly um, livestock. So he had cows, you know, hanging out on the hills and doing their thing and grew some crops and, you know, kind of kept that going for a long time um, until... I think he sold his land in, in late 18, 1918, 1920. And shortly thereafter, oil was discovered. And that was, uh, I think, Standard Oil and Texaco were the ones that really did the first, you know, dropped the first wells. So we're like in that there will be blood era. Oh, <laughs> God, right? yes. Well, you know, you think Lucky Baldwin, he wasn't lucky. That was the sarcastic part of it. I mean, if he had known there was oil underneath his land, I'm sure he'd be more wealthy than he was before. I mean, Baldwin Park, Santa Anita, all that stuff is his land, uh, or was his, his family's land, and Baldwin Hills, you know, is his other legacy. Um, so oil was discovered, and that changed everything. Um, production, I think it reached its peak in, uh, I think, in the, in the 40s and 50s. Um, but, you know, all of L.A. was an oil field at that time. I mean, you go to Venice Beach, you go to, you know, Doheny, you know, up in Beverly Hills. I mean, it was, it was black with oil and those derricks were everywhere. And people forget, oh, you know, this is a relic. This is, you know, kind of a blast from history. You know, when you look at the Baldwin Hill, you say, why are they still here? What era are we living in? You know, this is, this is 2011. Why are there still derricks in the middle of a city? And say, well, these are the only ones that kind of stayed. The rest of them we paved over and built homes and, you know, and said everything's going to be just fine. Or uh, schools. From the, the coast all the way to downtown, you know, uh, there were oil derricks at one time and now. And uh, these are moving, though. They're still in use. They're active, yes. This is an active oil field. Um, it is uh, owned by multiple landowners, which are families. 
um, and they, you know, depend on the royalty checks for taking care of their families or their elderly or, you know, the fixed income um, opportunity. Um, they produce uh, by uh, leasing out the, the, the operation to a company called Plains Exploration and Production Company. And uh, they've been here for, I think it's the 1990s, uh, they came and picked up the field from Chevron um, when it was kind of at its lowest production level. And they said, well, we can come here and do secondary recovery and sweep the field and, and you know, figure out how to make it work. Uh, it's not something a big company's interested in. It's something a small company's interested in. And planes came out and started doing their thing. Started doing their thing. The thing that PXP started doing will be the subject of our next installment of our series here and here in the city called Air Check, Pollution and Petroleum from a Community Perspective. You can check out some videos of the Inglewood oil field at our website here in the city. That's H-E-A-R in the city dot org. This is what it is. This is what it's going to be. You are listening to Here in the City on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara. 93.7 FM in San Diego. And 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. An archive and a podcast of our shows is at Here in the City. That's H-E-A-R in the city dot org. And at kpfk.org, you can like us on Facebook. If you like. And visit us at our website, hereinthecity.org. And follow us on Twitter. For the last part of our show, we take a tour of Now Dig This, art in black Los Angeles. Here in the city's Jesse Lerner was there for the opening. With 48 exhibitions currently open, the Getty's expansive survey of post-war arts in Southern California, Pacific Standard Time, is now in full swing. And it's clear that Now Dig This, Art in Black Los Angeles, 1960 to 1980, is one of the highlights. I attended the opening of the show last month, where the curator, Kelly Jones, led a walkthrough of the exhibition. Talk about those things. So I started to talk, think about um, 
formally. Okay, if we're going to think about assemblage, we're going to think about people like Ed Keenholz, Berman, Herms, and we're going to look at, you know, Alonzo Davis. And then when I started talking to the artist, the artist said, you know what? We didn't really know those guys. They were showing our work. We weren't really friends with them, so that's not really going to work for us. So I said, hmm, okay. Let me rethink what I am thinking here. And then I started asking them, like, who were your friends? Who were the people that influenced you? Who were the people that helped you? Who were the people that you influenced? And I came up with a whole bunch of other names that changed really the look, particularly of this section called Snapshot. Um, one example would be Marc de Suvro. You all probably have heard of that artist. He has a large piece right on Venice Beach. Um, de Suvro was actually making work in LA a lot uh, during the 60s. Um, John Otterbridge had told us the other day that he was living in his car behind the Pasadena Art Museum while working on a commission. And John Otterbridge worked at the Pasadena Art Museum as a preparator at the time. So they got to be friendly, and uh, he invited DeSuvro over to see his work. And DeSuvro saw he was making these pieces, such as the containment series that we looked at, cutting the metal by hand. And he said, you know what? Um, you know, I'm going to go out of town again. You know, I'd like to just leave these power tools with you if you, you know, think you can use them. Well, DeSuvro went out of town for a year. <laughs> and, you know, that allowed um, John Otterbridge to actually finish that series. Part of the reason he did was because he had these power tools led to him by Mark DeSuvro. So those are some of the relationships that we're thinking about here. DeSuvro also famously built uh, an object called the Los Angeles Tower of Protest, the Los Angeles Peace Tower. and. Um, he did that, it was a, a large metal structure that had other works kind of hung on it by artists, but one of the people that helped him build that structure was Mel Edwards, and you saw him with the kind of welded steel that he made. So those are the kind of um, uh, relationships that we're thinking about. This is a beautiful portrait by, um, of Angela Davis, certainly of the time, she's an icon of the time, and um, you know, people would say, oh, that's a great example of black art, except it's by a white person, right? You know, so this is the type of thing. We can still see these beautiful things, but um, the artist is Elizabeth Lee Taylor. The artist actually showed in gallery, gallery 32, which uh, Suzanne Jackson started um, again, and this is Suzanne Jackson's work, and you'll see more of her paintings inside, um, where, you know, she showed African-American artists, but also other artists, so showing these various networks that people had. A number of these works entered institutional collections, such as for this, this one at the Corcoran Gallery of Art, this one at the Oakland Museum, and this one at the Whitney Museum. One of the ways that that actually started uh, to happen is because artists were protesting. Artists were saying, look, you know, we are, um, you know, taxpayers, and yet none of our work, you know, the museum is, is uh, supported by tax dollars, but there's no work by African-American artists in the museums. And they started protesting these institutions. So eventually the institution started to change and started to purchase the work. In fact, the Whitney Museum, the first solo exhibition by an African-American artist at the Whitney Museum wasn't until 1969. Um, so it's, you know, amazing to even think about something. When we think of assemblage in post-war Los Angeles, 
We typically think of artists like Ed and Nancy Keenholtz, Wallace Berman, and George Herms, many of whom showed at the now-legendary Ferris Gallery. One gallery at the Hammer features another group of artists using similar techniques, assembling sculptures from discarded materials. The section of the show is called Assembling. It also has for us some of the uh, connection with the ideas of assembling for community, for social change, uh, that people were working with. So that's the other idea about assembling that we want to think about. Um, John Arterbridge is one of the important artists of this group. This series is the containment series that um, Arterbridge did. And in the containment series, he's thinking about breaking down boundaries, boundaries between painting and sculpture. Um, and also breaking down boundaries both in social and artistic realm. So that's what he's doing in the containment series. Uh, another piece here by Otterbridge here on the right is one of, uh, has my favorite title of all time of the show. Uh, it's called Jive Ass Bird. And I just love that title because I just think it's, it's amazing and just can be used in many ways. As somebody said in another tour, you know, I'm trying to find information on this artist. I looked him up. There's nothing on him in the historical record except for his obituary. But when I was doing um, uh, visits to private collections, um, everybody I visited in LA had at least one John Riddle, if not five. So how could you have an artist whose work was so highly collected and yet there's nothing in the historical record about it. So that was something, and that is something that we're changing with this show and with Pacific Standard Time. This work, Ghetto Merchant, is another piece from, uh, made from remnants of the Watts Rebellion. You see the cash register in the middle here, mm. thinking about you know, uh, merchants who may have preyed on communities by you know, high prices and, and goods that are, are, are below grade. So this is something that he's thinking about in this work. Riddle's works are, of course, some of the most political in the show, overtly political, shall I say. Of course, we mostly know Betty Sarr as an assemblage artist. And she starts making assemblages in 1966. Uh, we see this piece here, Mystic Window for Leo, in 1966, where she's still dealing with uh, astrology themes. Uh, this piece called Read Read Box, which is later where those kind of themes of alternate cosmologies also go to African-based religions. A Gregory is a charm in a kind of African-based uh, cosmology called Hoodoo that some of you may have heard of. It's related to Vodun, Santeria, and Candomblé, which are African-based uh, religious traditions uh, that are uh, come to the Americas. So here she's dealing with these same ideas of alternate cosmologies, but in um, with an African bent. 1968, Martin Luther King is assassinated, and Betty Starr says, you know, I started thinking differently about, um, you know, what my work should be and do. And here she has Black Girl's Window, where she still has this kind of, you know, the moon, the stars, this kind of cosmological idea. Uh, the Leo astrological sign, which is Betty Sarr's birth sign. Um, but also the figure of the black woman reemerges. And I invite you all to see this piece up close later on because it has these holographic eyes that kind of blink and wink at you. And this is not anything that you can actually see in a book. So you really have to experience it. But you know, the black figure reemerges. She also begins to do work with uh, stereotypes. 
exploding stereotypes. So here, taking the figure of the minstrel and exploding it, um, putting it in view, but then also showing how um, overlaying that figure over a scene of lynching and thinking about lynching as a kind of spectacle sport. It wasn't, it wasn't only about violence against black bodies, but seeing violence as a kind of spectacle right before the birth of film. And then also seeing the kind of black militant as this kind of entertaining figure for many at that time. The exhibition runs through January 8th, 2012 at UCLA's Hammer Museum the corner of Welshire and Westwood. For Here in the City, this is Jesse Lerner. And that's it for Here in the City today. Special thanks to Jesse Lerner, Luis Sierra Campos, Tandisizwe Shimurenga, Daniela Gerson, Sabiha Khan, Albert Chacon, Rachel Salmon, Will Coley, Holly Harper, Karen Ness, and to you, our listeners. We will be back next week with more radio realities from the urban landscape. Until then, you can find us on the web at Here in the City. That's H-E-A-R in the city dot org. I'm Sarah Harris. Signing off. To get thing on. When you go in and out, may you have peace and level and safe. Yes. Be safe. Peace. <laughs>